Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere nearby, and 1 Corinthians begins on page 952 of that Bible. A couple of things to mention before we get uh, be, begin. Uh, one is that uh, if you've been around for a little while, you know that uh, Debbie Jones recently retired from uh, serving our congregation as our church secretary. Uh, she even found a way to squeeze in a few extra vacation days at the end by having gallbladder surgery. So, I mean, she'd do anything for vacation. Uh, she's had, had enough of me. I've got to get out of here. So, um, anyway, we uh, praise the Lord for Debbie and for her ministry, and you'll see in the bulletin that in a couple of weeks we're going to have a card shower just to say thank you to her on the 29th. So I hope that you will take some time to, uh, to write a card and, and offer your own thanks and appreciation for, for her and for all that the Lord did through her ministry among us. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is uh, that beginning this month, actually, Chris Hardy will be leading our music on the first and the third Sundays of each month. And uh, I want to just say a brief word to say, one, that shared ministry is good ministry. It is good to share ministry. And secondly, I, in, in 2013, when I began uh, leading the praise team, uh, that was not something that I said, you know what, I got to do that. I'm getting that guy out of here so that I can do that. Uh, and though in God's providence, uh, he has given me certain gifts that help uh, with the praise team, and I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful to be able to share that responsibility. So, so nothing's wrong. It's just, <laughs> if it had never happened that I was leading music, you wouldn't be wondering, well, why isn't, why isn't he doing that? Um, but uh, anyway, just wanted to say that, and I'm very thankful for Chris. And it was good to actually be part of the choir this morning, I will say that, down here, because uh, you sound wonderful. You sound wonderful. To sing praise with you is one of my favorite things uh, in the week, and so thank God for that. Why don't we pray uh, before we launch in? Father, we come before you, the Ancient of Days, and bring, bring ourselves to you and ask that you would open our minds and our ears and our hearts to your word at this time. We pray that what you say in your word our hearts will receive as truth that we will love it and believe it and live according to it. We ask, Lord, today that as you speak through your word that your church will be strengthened. Lord, we pray that those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, who are not yet trusting him, would see in him a beautiful and wonderful Savior who has died for them and been raised again. They will come to him by your grace. We pray above all that you will be glorified as your word is spoken by your servant to your people. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want you to imagine living in New York City, a bustling city of commerce. Some of the largest companies in the world have their headquarters in New York City. 
It's a city where numerous theaters are always ready to entertain you. Athletics play a central role. Street preachers call out their message. Uh, Sexual immorality is a career choice. It's an incredible city of wealth and of poverty side by side. A city where people from all over the world come wanting a better life where dozens of ethnicities live side by side, a city of pluralism because multiple ethnicities from around the world means multiple religions. A truly influential city. Its culture is hard to resist, hard to resist the pursuit of wealth, hard not to take on the ideals of the culture, hard not to get caught up in the endless pursuit of status and success and entertainment and physical pleasure, hard not to see all of that as the good life. But that's not just hard in New York City. That's hard in Indianapolis. It's hard everywhere. And you see, God wants His church in a culture like that. And, he wa- and a culture like that actually needs the church. It needs a church held together by the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, a church full of Christians who shine with the light of Christ, whose minds and lives are not shaped by the world, but are shaped by God's Word, a church singularly devoted to Jesus Christ that will not compromise, a church that stands out. See, God wants His church infiltrating that world, but God does not want that world infiltrating His church. Because when that happens, when the world shapes the views and the doctrines and the practices and the morals and the lives of the church, it may become a church the world wants, but it is no longer the church that the world needs. First century Corinth is like a New York City in the ancient world, a center of trade and business, a city that attracts immigrants from the east and from the west, a city of ethnic and religious diversity, a city marked by entertainment and self-indulgence and athletics and, and sexual immorality, sexual immorality to the point that a word was coined that to Corinthianize, to act like a Corinthian meant to indulge in sexual sin. One commentator writes that status, kudos, popularity, money, success, and pleasure were the idols at the heart of Corinth, concealed in the outward pursuit of the good life. That was the world then, and that is the world now. And when you walk into a church, whether it's in first century Corinth or 21st century Indianapolis. You should find men and women living in stark contrast to the world. But that's not the case in Corinth. They're giving in to culture. They're inviting the morals and ideals of Corinth to govern and guide the life of the church. They're compromising. They're in conflict with one another. This church is a mess. And when the Apostle Paul gets the news of this, his heart is stirred and agitated and broken because just a few years ago he was in Corinth, spent 18 months there, 
preaching the gospel there. He had planted this church. He knows these folks. He loves these folks. So he writes this letter to these Christians to call them back to genuine Christian living. And because there's nothing new under the sun, we need to hear Paul's words today. We need to hear them if we ourselves are off track to call us back. And we need to hear them if we're not right now off track to be warned to not go off track. And so that's why we'll spend the next few months listening to Paul, listening to the Spirit speak through Paul's pen in this letter to the Corinthians because it speaks to us and to our day as much as it did to Corinth in theirs. Because when we're very honest, we will admit we are not all that different from our Corinthian brothers and sisters. So let's listen to these opening words from Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And then we'll think about them together. This is what the Spirit says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there are so many problems in Corinth that if you were to sit down this afternoon and you were to read the entire letter... And then you went to think back on these opening verses, you would find them quite surprising. Should Paul really be thanking God for these folks? Things are so bad. Should he be thankful? Well, the answer is. Yes, but not just because giving thanks was a matter of protocol in writing letters. Because when you get to Galatians, Paul doesn't say any thanks at all. He goes right into the problems. And there's so much wrong here, he will confront it, he will correct it, but Paul still recognizes the grace of God in this church. Now, I don't know if some of you enjoy going antiquing. But uh, in some places, it seems that the word antique is just code for junk. And you have to go into some of these places with your eyes set to find the beautiful 
in the midst of all the junk. And Paul here is going to get to the junk. But he will not bypass the beautiful. He will not act as if God is not working at all in this church. And his example teaches us, doesn't it? You know what we're very, very quick to do is get to the junk. That's what we like to do, isn't it? When you hear some bit of news about some preacher or some church or some something, or when you think about uh, people around you in your family or in, your, in, the, in the congregation or at your workplace who call themselves Christians, it's very easy just to zero in on the junk, isn't it? When I do uh, when I when I when I do premarital counseling, one of the things that I say to these young couples, because we all all of us who would do such things know that um, that the honeymoon phase will end, right? And you get into real life, and you realize very very quickly this person has no clue how to squeeze a tube of toothpaste, or how to how to put a, a, a toilet paper on a roller. Uh, they can't seem to remember to stop for the sour cream at the grocery store no matter how many times I ask or how many texts I've sent. They sleep wrong. They eat wrong. They cook wrong. And what I tell these young couples when they go in is that through their lives, one of the things that they ought to be doing is to become a grace headhunter in their marriage, to be looking for grace to say something like you know you acted different in this kind of situation last year but the Lord's actually changed you isn't that great but it's not just true for marriage friends it's true in friendships we need to be people who love to see God's grace at work, even when we have to do hard things. And so here is Paul. He's found grace, and before he gets to the junk, he's going to highlight it, and he's thankful for it. And we should take our pattern from him and give thanks for God's grace given to God's people in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. He gives thanks for God's grace given to God's people in Jesus Christ. Really, it's all about grace. It's all about giving thanks for God's grace. The central verse is verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And so let's think about this grace that Paul sees in them. Let's think about it. This, this favor that God has placed on them, this life-giving favor, this power that is at work in them. First, we see in these nine verses that God's grace calls. God's grace calls. Paul says that God called him to be an apostle. In fact, listen to how he talks about this 
calling in another letter. In Galatians, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So he says a few things there, that God set him apart, called him by grace, and revealed his son. Now, this call isn't like a party invitation from the Lord, you know, come if you can, um, or if, come if you'd like. It's, it's not like a party invitation. What, it, what it's like is Jesus standing in a cemetery and saying, Lazarus, come forth from John chapter 11. And what happens? Jesus calls, Lazarus wakes up from the dead, and walks out. And this kind of calling that Paul is talking about is a supernatural act whereby God gives spiritual life and brings us to Himself. And the fact that that call is by grace means that it's a free gift. Paul didn't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. And he uses the same word, called, about the Corinthians. In verse 2, they are called to be saints. In verse 9, they are called into relationship with Jesus. Yes, God set them apart just like God set Paul apart, and they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, verse 2. To be sanctified means to be set apart, set apart from the world, set apart to be God's people, set apart for God's purposes. They are, notice what he calls them, the church of God. The Corinthians, the Corinthian letters are the only place that Paul addresses the church that way. The church of God. In Thessalonians, he says the church of the Thessalonians in God. In other places, he'll say to the saints in wherever it is. But here, it's the church of God. They need to be reminded, this isn't Paul's church. This isn't the Corinthians' church. This is God's church. And they're called to be God's holy people. That's what, I mean, he says it. Called to be saints. This is not some special class of Christians. It essentially means that they are called to be God's holy people. Not just to be God's people, but to be God's holy people. And that their lives ought to give evidence that they are set apart. It's like a little hint of what he's going to be addressing later in the letter. They shouldn't fit in with the world. They belong somewhere else. They belong to someone else, to God. And friend, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then these words speak of you as well. God called you in the same way that God called the Corinthians, in the same way that God called Paul to himself. He set you apart before you were born. And at some point in your life, He called you. Now, maybe you had heard the gospel dozens of times before that. Maybe your friend had been sharing Christ with you for years. Maybe your parents were having family devotions all the time. Maybe you were sitting under the preaching of the gospel and you had heard it dozens, hundreds of times before that. But that time, something was different. You hadn't changed. 
You hadn't gotten any smarter. You hadn't turned over a new leaf. You hadn't cleaned up your act. But something was different. You didn't just hear the words. They didn't just go in one ear and out the other. You felt them. They went in the ear and they took a turn and they went down and they drove deep down into your heart and woke it up. So that you responded in a way you had never responded before. You saw Jesus in a new way, not as a teacher, not as an example, not as a guy who wants to ruin all my fun. You saw him as God incarnate who came to save, a Savior you need, a Savior that you can't live without. Your heart was drawn to him, and you turned from your sin, and you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You did what verse 2 says. You called on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Question. How do you label what happened that day that didn't happen any other day? Well, I was saved. Yes, you were. I came to faith in Christ. Yes, you did. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul would say, let me tell you what happened. God called you. So that on that Tuesday in Fall Creek Falls State Park, as I'm sitting around with a whole bunch of other teenagers, listening to a guy named Kenneth preach, Jesus stood in the cemetery of my life and said, Toby, come forth. And I did. God's grace calls. Isn't that good news? Do you know why that's so, such good news? Because you're sharing the gospel with friends. And it's not up to your clever presentation or your ability to answer every question that's going to make the difference. It's why you can't just plead with your friends on behalf of God. It's why you have to plead with God on behalf of your friends. Call them, Lord. Open their ears. Unplug their ears so that they hear your voice. And they come running to you. I give thanks to my God always, Paul says, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. God's grace calls us from guilt to forgiveness, from death to life, from being an outcast to being sons and daughters in God's family. And Paul gives thanks for it. Even though things are a mess in Corinth, all hope is not lost because God's grace is present. Their sin is not acceptable, but they are genuine Christians, and even where sin is great, grace is greater because God calls. The second thing we see is that God's grace equips. Look at the first word in verse 5 that. In other words, Paul's not through talking about grace. He doesn't just say, I give thanks for the grace, now let me go on to something else. No, the grace results in something. 
God doesn't just get, God's grace doesn't just call them to salvation. It gives them all that they need, <clears throat> gives them gifts, equips them for ministry. Look at verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Now, Paul speaks in terms of gifts because the whole matter of gifts is a huge issue in Corinth. They tend to be proud of their gifts. One person thinks, well, I have this gift, and it really makes me stand out among the church. And this guy over here says, oh, that's a very nice gift, but wait until you can see what I can do. And then someone's cowering in the corner saying, well, my gift's nothing like theirs. My gift must be inferior. You see, later in the letter, Paul is going to have to make sure it's very clear that every one of these gifts comes from the same Lord, the same Spirit. Every gift has its place in the church and that no one should feel superior as if they need no one else. And no one should feel inferior that because I have this gift, I'm not really anything. No, God has given gifts. And here, Paul mentions, look, in verse 5, specifically gifts of speech and knowledge. Now, why does he do that? Well, Corinth is a city that loves speech. They love speech. The philosophers use rhetoric to get their points across, turns of phrase, being clever with language, to draw you in, to get your attention, to make you believe them. Speech is about method. It's about how you say it, how persuasive you can be, what kind of following you can gain, how big your audience is. Now, of course, this happens in churches today, doesn't it? Isn't the method of speech, the method by which we do things, isn't that exalted quite a lot? That we need to craft certain environments, that we need to excessively emphasize creativity. When I was slipping through Facebook uh, during the Christmas season, I saw some or I don't know if it's Facebook. It's either Facebook or Twitter. I'm scrolling through. And here is what appears to be a church auditorium. And there are men with drums hanging from their shoulders and they're playing. But they're not standing anywhere. They're actually suspended in the air by wires flying over the pews. Because maybe this will bring them in. The emphasis on the method is everywhere. The emphasis on speech, if you will, how you can turn the phrase, how you can say it. And it doesn't it, it, it manifests itself in different forms in different parts of the church. So uh, we ought not to think we are clear of this. But Corinth loved speech. Happens in churches today. It also happens in politics today, doesn't it? About uh, 40 years ago, <clears throat> Neil Postman wrote about this in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He tells the story of a New York Senate race where uh, one of the candidates crafted these uh, well-thought-out position papers to explain his policy. The other candidate 
made 30-second commercials to sell his image. Who do you think won? The commercial candidate did. His method of communication drowned out his opponent's message. The same thing happens today when, when politicians take to the airwaves or to Twitter. What separates candidates is no longer thoughts on policy. It's the ability to slam your opponent with great effectiveness so that candidates don't want their constituents to say, oh, that's a really good idea. What they want them to say is, ooh, that was a good one. He really got him. That's my guy. My guy's the guy with the sharpest language, the sharpest wit, the sharpest tongue. And when that's what the culture demands, that's what the culture gets. And then things go haywire. Going for style points in speech is the Corinthian way, and it may be the American political way, and it more and more it seems to be the evangelical Twitter way, but it is not the gospel way. Paul writes in the second chapter, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. This is actually part of the Corinthians' problem with Paul. He's, such, he's so simple. He's not like the philosophers. He's not doing what they do. He's not as clever as they are. He just keeps saying the same things. Where are the novel ideas? Where are the new ways of thinking, Paul? The Corinthians are gifted in speech. But friends, when that gift is infected with worldly wisdom and worldly motivation, it's no longer good to God. Corinth is also a city that loves knowledge. Knowledge here is, uh, in verse 5, is a very broad word. It can include understanding and wisdom and reason. And God has gifted this church to know Him, to understand His truth. But this, too, is a double-edged sword. Because in chapter 8, Paul is going to write that knowledge puffs up. It gives you a big head. It had given a big head to George Mueller before he was converted. George Mueller was converted at a prayer meeting. He went to a prayer meeting and they read a sermon and then, and then someone was to pray. And this man praying, as they're praying, Mueller is listening to his words and he thinks, I am far more educated in theology than this man. But I cannot pray like he does. Knowledge has puffed him up. You see, knowledge actually can feed humble faith as we grow to know the Lord, but knowledge can also feed arrogance, a big head. And in Corinth, it seems to be inflating heads rather than humbling people. And still, with all of the danger and the temptation related to speech and to knowledge, Paul gives thanks for these gifts. 
because he wants the Corinthians to see them that way as gifts, not as ways to brag about themselves, but as reasons to praise God because of the gifts of grace in their lives. And because grace has gifted them, it confirms that God's gospel of grace is in them. Look at verse 6. Even as the testament, right in between these two statements about how God has equipped them comes this. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. God's gifts in them confirm God's grace in them. Don't mess that up. We should be thankful for these things, not boastful about them. And friends, we need to hear this today. We need to know that within our congregation, God has given us the gifts that He has given us. And the moment we start to think, well, you know, if we, he had, if we had that preacher, or if we had that musician, or if we had this, or if we had that that I see in these other churches, I see the way that they're gifted and doing all that. I wonder if we could draw some of that over here and get some of that in here. Don't we call into question God's providential placement of gifts in different congregations when we do that? Don't we say, God, it's nice how you've done here, but there's just a little bit you left out. We're going to go get it. Oh, friends, we need to hear this. God distributes gifts as He desires. And we also need to be careful when it comes to thinking about the way that God has gifted us for ministry. Whether your gift is one that is uh, used publicly or whether it's privately, whether it's in the spotlight or whether it all unfolds in the dark. The moment that we feel pride about these things or, quite frankly, feel self-pity, which is just pride in disguise, the moment that we feel pride, Paul would pull us close and tell us once again, that gift came by God's grace. What do you have that He did not give? It's from Him, and it's for His glory. And it's meant to serve others, not your ego. God's grace equips. Isn't that good to remember? Isn't it good to remember? Even if, even if someone says, man, just the way you did that, I would just really appreciate it. The way you said that, the way you did that, the way you taught that class, the way you sang that song, the way you organized that thing, man, that's just amazing that you've got all those talents. Immediately in your mind, you ought to be thinking of the Lord. Yes, it's encouraging to know that people are blessed by the gifts that God has given you and that in some measure you may have been faithful with them and that could be an encouragement from the Lord, but it ought not to be an exaltation of self. Because apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Nothing. God's grace calls, God's grace equips, and then God's grace keeps. Several scholars uh, mention that the problem in Corinth is what is known as overrealized eschatology. Now, that for many of you, sounds like garbledygook. What does that mean? Well, eschatology, put very simply, is a study of the end. 
the end, Christ returns, all of the blessings, all of the unfolding of that restoration. And over, and some of that we experience today, right? We have life. We have the Spirit as a down payment in our lives. We have already some of the blessings that God has given us, but not yet. Overrealize means we think that we have everything that God is ever going to give us. We can have it and experience it right now. This is where the prosperity gospel comes from, that you can have perfect health and wealth and all of these things. And in Corinth, it seems that they are acting as if they've arrived because of how gifted they are. They've got everything. They have need for nothing. But the reality is, is we don't have everything, do we? Our tears are not yet wiped away. Hospitals have not yet been put out of business. Death is not yet removed from our experience. We are not yet free from sin. Everything that is awaiting us has not been brought into this experience. And so Paul wants to make sure to address this just in this small form. He's going to talk about it more later. But he says, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know there is still something else. There is still something more. You are waiting on something that is far better than what you have here. You are waiting on the day of Jesus Christ, the day when he sets everything right that has gone wrong, the day when sin will be gone from existence and all that sin brings, the pain, the loss, the disease, the heartache, the body deterioration, the injustice, the grief, the death, the oppression, the broken homes, the broken relationships, all of it will be no more. The day when Jesus defeats all his enemies and ours and he rules in righteousness and we reign with him. The day when the new heaven and earth are, there, are established and we live there. The day when we'll be face to face with our Savior enraptured by the joy and peace of his presence. The day that will never come to an end. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Don't lose your longing for that day, Corinthians. And don't lose your longing for that day, Gray Road. Don't get comfortable here. If you think you can live your best life now, then there's nothing to look forward to. The hope of Jesus is emptied of its meaning if your best life can be lived now. Do not get satisfied with your spiritual progress. Don't feel like you've arrived. Forget what's behind and keep straining forward to what lies ahead, the call, the upward call, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is so much more, and it's beyond all that you can imagine. And the God who calls you will keep you 
so that you make it there. Verse 8, he will sustain you to the end. He will sustain you. Your effort does not sustain you. Your effort does not keep you. God's grace keeps you. And then he finishes. Verse 9. God is faithful. Now in the Greek language, the original language in which this was written, the first word in the sentence is faithful. And in Greek, that's one of the ways that you can put emphasis on something, is to move it to the front of the sentence. He says, faithful is God. Not faithful are you. Not faithful am I. Faithful is God. That's where the emphasis belongs. The calling, the equipping, the keeping, it all highlights God's faithfulness. As much as the Corinthians love the spotlight, and as much as we love the spotlight, we're not the ones in it. God is. God calls. God equips. God keeps. So God gets all the glory. And God does this calling and equipping and keeping for all who are in Jesus Christ, all who trust in Him, all who've been saved by Him. If you didn't catch it, nine times in those nine verses, the name that appears is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just let your eye wander down and I'll point them out. Here we go at the beginning. An apostle of Christ Jesus, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was given in Christ Jesus. The testimony about Christ. The revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The eyes of the Corinthians need to be pried off of the mirror and off of self and pointed to heaven, to their God, to His grace, to His Son, to their Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what these words should do for us. They should get our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on Him, the one who called us, the one who equipped us, and the one who will keep us until that day. You see, the Corinthians are all about the Corinthians. And if we're honest, gray rotors can so often be about gray rotors. But these nine verses say, don't fall for it. Look to him. Look to him. What is the solution for every problem that Paul will lay out? All of it has to begin by looking to him. What is the solution for the problems that rise up in your life? 
it must begin and be sustained by looking to him. He is the one. His grace called you. His grace equipped you. His grace will keep you. And so we ought to give thanks for God's grace given to God's people in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do give thanks for the grace that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For favor with you when our sin would leave us cast out. Your grace is greater than our sin. Your grace in Jesus Christ who died for us, who's been raised again. And Lord, I thank you for the grace that you have given to each one in this congregation. For each one who has called upon the name of the Lord, that your call brought their call by your grace. Lord, we pray that we will live as those who are your holy people. We pray that you would keep our eyes off of ourselves, though that is where they tend to turn. That is where the pull of sin would take them. Turn our eyes to you. Remembering that you're the one who has called us. You're the one who has equipped us. You are the one who will keep us. We are thankful that when we feel like our faith is going to fail, Christ holds us fast. We give you thanks for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? And uh, we are going to sing together that hymn.